This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, President Obama, former President Obama at Rice University. A little confab with uh, James Baker, uh, John Meacham, the author, presiding, moderating. And uh, Obama, um, boy, I, I know he's the greatest intellect that uh, Western civilization has ever produced, but, you know, he's loath to say it. He lets his friends in the D.C. press corps normally do that, but feeling a bit Trumpian these days and uh, wants some plaudits and thank yous for all that he's done that still continues to produce benefits for the American people. Oil production, that stock market, you're welcome. I was extraordinarily proud of the Paris Accords because, uh, look, I know, you know, uh, you know, I, I know we're an oil country and uh, we need American energy, and, and by the way, uh, American energy production. Uh, you wouldn't always know it, uh, uh, but you know, it went up every year I was president. Um, Not on federal land. And you know that whole suddenly America's like the, the biggest oil producer and the biggest guy. Uh, that was me, people. I just wanted you to. So, <laughs> oh yeah, so, yeah, yay! I don't know. Uh, was it? I'll just clap. <laughs> It's a little like, you know, sometimes you go to Wall Street and folks would be grumbling about anti-business. I said, have you checked where your stocks were when I came in office and where they are now? What, <laughs> what? what are you yeah. talking What are you complaining yeah, about? Yeah, man. Just say thank you, please. Yeah. Um, because, because I want to raise your taxes a couple percent. I agree. Uh, the president was great for Wall Street. Was that the value proposition of President Obama? Is that where the Democratic Party is, the party of Wall Street? I th- I appreciate the concession, but that's not who they say they are. So thank you, President Obama. And he's when you talk about oil. I mean, gas prices went up 96% within his eight years in office. Uh, a lot. Thank you, President Obama. You, you were owed a thank you, and you got one. Now, uh, Obama also uh, addressing the topic of uh, identity politics. And uh, even though we failed him, and we failed to provide the proper thank yous for all that he did for us, um, he would fail a constitution test. Listen to this. When I hear people say they don't like identity politics, they don't like, uh, I think it's important to remember that identity politics doesn't just apply when uh, it's black people or gay people or women. No. You know, the, uh, the, the folks who really uh, originated identity politics were the folks who said, you know, three-fifths clause and all that stuff. That, that yeah. was identity politics. <laughs> That's still uh, that's still out there. Uh, maybe gotta, maybe that was a little too controversial for Houston, but too controversial for Houston. No, but you know, uh, Jim, Jim Crow was identity politics. That's where it started. Yeah, Jim Crow is identity politics. So now you want to do Jim Crow with a different oppressor and a different oppressed? President Obama, Jim Crow was identity politics. Terrible, pernicious, evil. So now we should do the reverse. Is that the argument of for from this great intellect? Huh. Houston. Maybe it's too controversial for Houston. Talk about what? Slavery? Or to be ignorant of the Constitution. That's too controversial. Am I supposed to clap? Three-fifths compromise? I don't remember that. What, which was that again? Neither does President Obama. Three-fifths compromise, he intended, or he implied, was the position of 
the slave states. It was not. It was not. The North didn't want slaves to be counted for the purposes of representation, and the South did because this was a fight at the 1787 convention over the number of representatives each state would get. So the North wanted to minimize the South's representation. The South wanted to maximize their representation, and that was the compromise over how to count for the purposes of census slaves. Ignorance. But I'll tell you what, it's jamokes like us who all along the way. Jamoke? I I can't stand that word. It's like a combination of mook and mope. Okay. (laughs) Jamoke. Jamokes like us all the way along the way. From his time as a community organizer to state rep to U.S. senator and then to president. We've stopped him from doing all he could for us. Here's the interesting thing that happens when you're president uh, or when you go through the experience of being president. Um, So. So you start off, you know, you're a community organizer and you're struggling to try to get people to recognize each other's common interests and. You know, you're trying to get some project done in a small community, and you start thinking, okay, you know what, this alderman's a knucklehead, and, you know, they're resistant to doing the right thing, and so I need to get more knowledge, more power, more influence so that I can really have an impact. And so you go to the state legislature, and you look around, and you say, well, these jamokes, I mean, be. <laughs> Not all of them, but I'm just saying, you know, you, you, you start getting that sense of this is just like dealing with the alderman, right? So, no, I, I got to do something different. So you, then you go to the U.S. Senate and you're looking around and you're like, oh, man. <laughs> and then you, and then when you're president, you're sitting in these international meetings and it's like the G20 and you got all these world leaders. And it's the same people. <laughs> what a burden we have been to President Obama. Lo, these many years of distinguished public service. For more on this topic and many others, we're pleased to be joined again by David French, writer at National Review, con- constitutional lawyer, best-selling author, veteran of Operation Iraqi Freedom. David, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Would you uh, like to offer your own thank you and or apology to President Obama? <laughs> I think he has thanked himself enough. All right. Well, we'll move on since I, you know, I I'm, took I, I took I, the, take the bait. well, it's sort of um, uh, basically, but, you know, a bit of a, a right here as a Chicago denizen to uh, initiate the review of President Obama. Uh, picking up on um, something President Obama had to say, though, about identity politics, uh, this continues to be the order of the day in our political discourse. And so we're after a contentious cycle with a lot of racially charged allegations and and contests that were centered around race, even including the uh, the last Senate election in Mississippi. Where do we go from here with identity politics in terms of the conservative or Republican perspective vis-a-vis the Democrat socialists? Yeah, I think right for at least for the time being, we're going nowhere but down uh, when it comes to identity politics. But, you know, the, the Democrats are at, uh, going into a election cycle where I think you're going to see identity politics wielded as a weapon in their own primary. Um, heck, you saw it happen as a uh, there was a, an effort to say that the 
very minor small-scale insurrection against Nancy Pelosi uh, in the Democrats' own caucus was driven by misogyny, which is absurd. Uh, so we're going to see identity politics come into play in the next two years in the Democratic primary in a very significant way. We'll see it wielded again, of course, uh, in 2020 in the battle with Trump. Um, and I, so I, I don't think I think identity politics, like a number of other dysfunctions in American society, is going to get worse before it gets better. We haven't hit rock bottom yet. And we're going to have to hit rock bottom before we try to figure out another way here. Yesterday, during an interview with the New York Post, President Trump said uh, when they asked him if he would pardon Manafort, he said it was never discussed, but I wouldn't take it off the table. Why would I take it off the table? Do you think that it would be prudent for him to pardon Manafort at some point in time? No. I mean, Manafort has there's there's really at this point no doubt that Manafort committed multiple serious federal crimes. Um the only reason to pardon Manafort uh, would be to help or reward him, help him or reward him for resisting further efforts to investigate Trump. So this is, looks to me like a transparent effort to continue to encourage Manafort to resist uh, his plea agreement and his plea deal with the special counsel. So I think if he pardoned Manafort, particularly in the middle of – if he pardons him in the middle of the investigation, before the investigation is complete, before the report comes out – he may well guarantee at that point that the House, this new Democratic House, which is a lot more Democratic than we thought it would be the day after Election Day, for example, is, is called some of these close races keep getting called for, for Democrats. Um, I think he'll guarantee that he'll face an impeachment vote that he'd likely lose in the House. Now, of course, he won't be convicted in the Senate, but I don't believe that he wants to be the third president of the United States to be impeached. And, and I think that that's something that would be a live possibility if he pardons Manafort or others in particular before this investigation's over. What about uh, being the next president to use uh, government shutdown theater to try to advance his policy agenda and, of course, speaking about border wall funding uh, and the judiciousness of going to the mat on border wall funding? Um, you know, I, it would not surprise me at all if we see more shutdown theater. Uh, and, and the short-term winner in shutdown theater usually tends to be the side that the media supports. So, you know, when you've had shutdown theater in the past, uh, it's we have seen time and time again it has been cast as Republican intransigence, Republican inflexibility, Republican unreasonableness, uh, you know, regardless of the merits of the argument. So I think that we'll see more of that. We'll see more of that coming from the media, especially if it's tied to border wall funding. But look, you know, uh, I am no particular fan of Donald Trump's, but I do believe that increased border security, including better, uh, uh, including better border fencing and better border barriers, ha will help prevent things like this caravan nonsense that we've been seeing over the last few weeks. If someone who's approaching the United States knows that they do not have a chance of sneaking in illegally, it's going to deter the approach. It's a more humane approach to border enforcement. It's, it's certainly more humane than the situation we have now where people come in, they try to start a life in our society, and then are looking over their shoulder all the time, wondering if they're going to be caught and deported. I think what we need to have is a situation where getting into this country illegally is much, more, much more difficult. Uh, and then that allows us to have a more rational conversation about immigration, allows us to decide what to do about the people who are already here and who have built a life, 
but I, there is a lot about a border barrier, a better border barrier that I think is just actually more humane and will actually introduce a degree of, of rationality and and uh, calmness to this discussion yeah. if it can be sort of somehow divorced from the excesses of Trump's rhetoric. Well, a lot of people, too, that are, you know, that want to come into this country, they don't really have strong asylum cases. Really, you know, one lady, right. um, you know, with the holding the two babies uh, with the tear gas behind her, you know, she at first said she's, you know, wants a better life. Well, she wants a job. <laughs> That's what she wants. Right. And then they also we've learned, you know, today that one of the people arrested on Sunday was an active MS-13 gang mem- member from Honduras. Right. I mean, the, the case for asylum is not my life is worse in Honduras than it would be in America. That's not that's not an asylum case. An asylum case has to deal with a very specific statutory criteria, criteria, a fear of persecution on very specific bases. Now, some people can meet that that test. Most people in in you know situations like this caravan cannot. And look, I totally sympathize with a person's desire to seek a better life. I also understand that the United States of America cannot throw open its borders and say, if you want a better life, come here. Because what ends up happening is you're destabilizing, you destabilize your economy, you're going to destabilize in many ways, you'll, you will introduce uh, massive changes in border communities and communities relatively close to the border that, they're, that are difficult to uh, absorb quickly. I mean, there's just so many problems with that to the point that very few people, only a radical extreme, say we should open our borders. Everybody understands we have to have limits of some kind, and it cannot be that we're only we're going to allow anyone in who can show that they could possibly have a better life in the U.S. That's just not the standard. I wanted to get your take on this uh, story of Tom Donnelly, uh, a uh, think tank foreign policy expert, um, American Enterprise Institute, who uh, underwent uh, the transformation to Giselle Donnelly. And uh, Rusty Reno writing about this because uh, the American Enterprise Institute supporting him, Arthur Brooks and, uh, and others saying, you know, we would welcome her using the pronoun her as part of the family. Rusty Reno writing over at First Things said this, the small episode shows us that our country is run by people who would accommodate themselves to Nero's Rome. From the beginning, I ad- adopted a skeptical attitude toward the elite outrage over a crude and demonic president. The great and the good deride him as beneath the office and unworthy of the role for which they imagine one of their rank better suited. The warm embrace AEI has given to the newly born Giselle Donnelly, transgender exhibitionist with a taste for BDSM sex, shows how ridiculous the line has always been. Our leadership class accommodates itself to mental illness and allows itself to be conscripted into private fantasies. They're the ones unfit to rule. Your reaction. <laughs> um, okay. It's a little overwrought uh, in this sense. Uh, one, I, I don't – look, AEI uh, can manage its own affairs. Um, and if Giselle Donnelly uh, is very effective at the work that Donnelly has been hired to do, then there, in, in my view – uh, a secular employer, that should be their concern. Uh, is this person effective in the job that they've been hired to do? Now, that, that's one analysis. The other one is, I think, uh, I think is very legitimate to the, criticize 
this embrace that going beyond simply saying we support this employee who is doing a very good job in what they have been hired to do, period, full stop, and then saying, well, and we also support the transition, and we're also going to uh, use these different pronouns, which I believe these, when you're using these different pronouns, essentially what you're doing is you're using uh, pronouns to say something that's not true. Uh, A man cannot become a woman. And so I think that there is a matter of degree here. I completely sympathize. And if I was running a a secular organization uh, and an employee transitioned and they're doing a great job in their job, well, by golly, they should be treated equally and the same as any other employee who is doing, who is performing on the, on the job. They should be evaluated on their, on the job performance. Um, Now, you're not going to find me, though, celebrating all the different variations of lifestyles that my employees, if I was a boss, might have. And I think that's one of the things uh, that's a little bit dysfunctional about our society is that we're saying not only, it's just not enough to say, hey, whoever you are from whatever race, gender, sexual orientation, gender identity in this workplace, I'm going to evaluate you on the basis of the job that you do. Uh, increasingly sort of the cultural uh, – cultural progressives are saying, no, it's not just that. We also want you to celebrate. Yes. We also want you to celebrate their identity. And, I, and that, I think, that's where you're going too far. Tolerance, acceptance, celebration, synonyms these days. Yes. David French, <laughs> writer at National Review, constitutional lawyer, best-selling author, and a veteran, a veteran of Operation Iraqi Freedom. David, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. And he joined us on our turnkey.com.